PTJ podcasts are made possible by the American Physical Therapy Association. Physical therapists diagnose and treat people of all ages with all types of health conditions to help keep them moving and functioning in daily life. Welcome to the Craigcast from Physical Therapy. Each month, PTJ Editor-in-Chief, Dr. Rebecca Craig, offers her take on the articles appearing in this month's PTJ. Here is Rebecca Craig. Hello, this is Rebecca Craig, and I am pleased to welcome you to the September issue of Physical Therapy. If you have a million things to do, I would suggest that you just put aside a little bit of time to look at this issue. There is something for everyone. It is really an extremely thoughtful set of papers, and I'm so pleased to be able to share them with you. So I'm going to do my traditional linear presentation, and we're going to start with the first manuscript. The first one is entitled, Physical Therapists as Primary Practitioners in the Emergency Department, Six-Month Prospective Practice Analysis. The first author is Adam DiGucci. The team is from the Emergency Department and the Physiotherapy Department and Melbourne Epicenter at the Royal Melbourne Hospital in Australia, and the Physiotherapy Department and Department of Medicine at the University of Melbourne, also in Australia. This is interesting, especially because in this country, Forbes magazine just came out with the 10 top sought-after medical specialty, and the two that are relevant to this are nurse practitioner and physician assistant. So the authors talk about the role of the physical therapist in Australia as moving from being a secondary contact person to a primary referrals person. They give a really nice background saying that in the United Kingdom, Ireland, Canada, and a lot of Australia, the title that physical therapists have received are physical therapists with advanced practice or primary contact practitioners. Now, in the other countries, save Australia, the scope of this responsibility is larger. The physical therapist can administer medications and can order a series of assessment tools such as MRIs and CTs and ultrasound scans and pathology tests as well as interpret them. In Australia at the moment, the primary extra feature that the physical therapist can do is order radiographs. This advanced practitioner in Australia is required to have a postgraduate certificate and at least five years of experience. Okay, so I hope I've set sort of the stage for this. There's been a lot of discussion in the U.S. because this role is served by many physical therapists who work in different arms of military. But as far as I know, there's not been a state that has approved this expanded practice. So sort of the driving force, at least in Australia, was because emergency departments have so many patients coming to them and there's continued increase, I'm going to say at about a 5% increase annually to the number of people who come directly to the emergency department. And so this advanced practice physical therapist sees the patients who primarily have musculoskeletal presentations. So the paper was basically a prospective observational study of the types of patients that were seen over a six-month period of time. Over a six-month period of time, these advanced practice physical therapists worked seven days a week and saw a total of 1,017 patients. So 
So again, I think you'll find the article extremely interesting in talking about the kinds of patients that were seen. The most common diagnosis were hand fractures, ankle sprains, and lumbar pain, and how many were referred and whether extra tests were given. Of the total number of patients that were seen, there were two adverse events only, and the adverse event the patients were called back for additional diagnosis because there was some question about interpretation on radiographs. And neither led to a negative outcome on the patient's part. So I think many of you will find that paper very interesting, especially for those of you who are interested in expanding scope of practice in your particular country. The next paper is entitled, Does Kinesiophobia Modify the Effects of Physical Therapy on Outcomes in Patients with Sciatica in Primary Care? a subgroup analysis from a randomized controlled trial. The first author is Anamika Fervuert. She and her colleagues come from the Department of General Practice at Erasmus MC University Medical Center in Rotterdam, the Netherlands, and the Department of Neurosurgery at Leiden that is also in the Netherlands. This is a secondary analysis of an original trial that was a randomized controlled trial that compared general practitioner's management alone with general practitioner's management plus physical therapy in patients with sciatica. They reported at one year that patients who received additional physical therapy had a perceived recovery that was stronger than the group that didn't receive physical therapy, but there was not cost-effectiveness demonstrated. The authors went back because, as many of you know, there's question about subgroup analysis or clustering patients and using different variables to see if certain types of patients within the group responded differently to the intervention than others. And so their subgroup analysis was based on kinesiophobia. Now, again, I'm going to read to you the definition of kinesiophobia because I want to make sure that we're all on the same page. So the definition that they used is an irrational and debilitating fear of physical movement resulting from a feeling of vulnerability to patient injury or re-injury. So, again, kinesiophobia is fear of movement. That You know, that's what it is when you break it down and translate it. But this is sort of a fear that's larger than perhaps is necessary. And so they did the subgroup analysis to see if persons who were afraid of moving benefited from the physical therapy intervention more than those who had low kinesiophobia. They used a scale to be able to assess called the Tampa scale for kinesiophobia. And basically what they found in the subgroup analysis is if they looked at, clustered the patients with the highest levels of kinesiophobia at baseline, that they found that that subgroup had a particular benefit from physical therapy related to decreasing leg pain intensity at 12 months. So again, from my perspective, there continues to be some real benefit at looking at subgroup analysis rather than sort of lumping all patients with a particular diagnosis and then seeing whether the intervention works. So I thank the authors for the secondary analysis. The next paper is entitled, Influence a Physical Therapist's Kinesiophobic Beliefs on Lifting Capacity in Healthy Adults. The first author is Sandra Lockhey. The team is from Hansei University of Applied Sciences in Groningen, the Netherlands. 
the Department of Rehab Medicine and the Groningen Spine Center, both at the University of Groningen, and Expertise Center of Health and Well-Being in Saxion, University of Applied Sciences, Anschede, the Netherlands. Now, this takes the concept of kinesiophobia and says rather than the patient having it, what if the physical therapist has kinesiophobia? What if the physical therapist is fearful that too much intensity can cause re-injury? So this is a really nice paper to follow, the one that we spoke about before. This study used physical therapist students and their ability to look at healthy subjects performing a lifting capacity test. So again, I'm going to make this really simple and encourage you to read it. But basically what they did was they used that same Tampa scale of kinesiophobia, and this time, instead of giving it to the patients, they gave it to the physical therapist. They used two groups of physical therapists. The examiners themselves were second-year physical therapist students. And the participants were also physical therapist students. So the participants that did the lifting test were physical therapist students, and the examiners were second-year physical therapist students. So what they found was when they gave the TSK to the examiners, what they found was that those who had the highest score on the kinesiophobia test asked their group to lift less. And so I'm going to give you numbers because I think it's really clear. The mean lifting capacity was 32 kilograms in the group that had physical therapist students who were afraid of causing harm versus almost 40 kilograms in the other group. So this is a mixed method analysis, and I really encourage you to read it. So it's saying maybe where bias that comes to the clinical setting decreases the intensity that the patients may be able to endure. So keep that theme in mind because I think it comes out a lot in this issue. The next paper is entitled Physical Therapist Views and Experiences of Pregnancy-Related Low Back Pain and the Role of Acupuncture, Qualitative Exploration. This article is submitted by Jackie Waterfield and her colleagues from the School of Health and Rehabilitation and Arthritis Research UK Primary Care Center at the Institute of Primary Care and Health Sciences at Keele University in the United Kingdom. This is another really interesting study. So let me give you some sort of background about low back pain in pregnancy. The prevalence estimates, of course, are wide-ranging, but the prevalence for low back pain ranges from 45% to 75% of women at some stage during their pregnancy. To me, that was just remarkable. I was totally unaware of that. And so, obviously, low back pain in pregnancy are highly correlated. And so these authors were interested in looking at acupuncture and the role that acupuncture may play in mediating this pain. Now, the reason, sort of the background for that interest is that in the United Kingdom, physiotherapists are licensed to give acupuncture. And there's some evidence in the literature that acupuncture is effective in the management of persistent, nonspecific low back pain. So the authors were interested in finding out whether physical therapists used acupuncture and if they didn't, why. So that was really the qualitative study. 
There were 21 physical therapists who participated. And the reason, in general, the physiotherapists were reluctant to use acupuncture with persons who were pregnant, even though it's within their scope of practice. And the reported reasons were lack of experience in treating pregnancy-related complaints, discomfort with expertise in their acupuncture acumen, mistrust about the current evidence related to acupuncture in terms of its safety and use and effectiveness, and then just fear of causing harm. So the message that comes from this paper is that although the physiotherapists in the United Kingdom have acupuncture within their scope of practice, and even though there's evidence to support that it could be effective in treating pregnant women with low back pain, it wasn't being utilized. This is an incredible opportunity for enhanced education for the physiotherapists and perhaps better outcomes. Again, this is a really thoughtful paper. I encourage you to look at it. And I think even if you're not interested in acupuncture, you'll find the description of the prevalence of low back pain in pregnant women to be very useful for you if you're in a musculoskeletal practice. The next paper is entitled Individuals Post-Stroke Do Not Perceive Their Spatial Temporal Gait Asymmetries as Abnormal. The author, primary author is Clinton Witzka and his colleagues. They're from the Department of Allied Health Sciences at the University of North Carolina and the Veterans Affairs Medical Center in Washington, D.C. Those of you who have treated persons with stroke know that it's not uncommon, even when they're discharged, for them still to walk asymmetrically. And in fact, it's been estimated that approximately 50% of people post-stroke have an asymmetry either in timing or in uh, stride or step length, all right? So there's just asymmetry. Now, the assumption that, again, I'm not sure we have supportive evidence for, but the assumption is that the asymmetrical gait may cause balance problems, is not as efficient, and may lead to risk of additional musculoskeletal injuries. Now, the one that I think probably most would agree with is the asymmetry may lead to loading of joints in new ways and may lead to, therefore, joint degeneration or other types of musculoskeletal injury. The authors were interested in exploring this asymmetry. And again, this is a small sample. There are only 36 persons post-stroke. They had to be at least six months post-stroke. Unfortunately, I can't tell you what the mean was for the sample because it's not in the study. But So they were at least six months post-stroke, so we would consider them certainly not acute and moving into the subacute or chronic stage post-stroke. What was interesting is that even though they walked asymmetrically, they didn't perceive that they were walking asymmetrically. So this wonderful nervous system that we had basically said, okay, this is a new state. This is symmetrical. The study is a really thoughtful experiment. So they have people walk over ground, determine their regular speed of walking, and then use that as a threshold to put the persons on split belt treadmills. And basically what they did with a split belt treadmill was normalize their spatial or temporal asymmetry 
and see whether persons detected that they were walking symmetrically. The bottom line is that they didn't. So they had to go beyond, basically make them asymmetrical in the opposite direction for it to be consciously perceived that the participant had achieved symmetry. So again, this allows us to think about the fact that we can visually assess step length, stride length, timing as asymmetrical, but the patient doesn't perceive it as asymmetrical. And so how are we supposed to help them achieve a symmetrical gait? So this is a really fun and very, very thoughtful paper. The discussion is really interesting because it calls you back to a review of your neuroanatomy. It talks about the fact that we have sort of two ways to send this sensory afferent information to the brain. One is ipsilaterally up through the dorsospinous cerebellar tracts to the cerebellum. And again, for some, there's a belief that that's sort of an unconscious afferent input. certainly takes longer to get to the consciousness. Or the afferent information can go up the dorsus column medial lemniscus. And in going there, it goes ultimately to the parietal cortex. So conscious appreciation of asymmetry involves sort of that area of premotor cortex, primary somatosensory cortex, and that posterior parietal area talking together to report asymmetry. So the authors talk about the fact that perhaps in persons post-stroke, there's a lower extremity sensory problem that leads initially to the asymmetry. So again, I really encourage you to read this paper. I thought it was extremely thoughtful and may lead to more effective intervention. The next paper is entitled Discordance Between Distance Ambulated as Part of Usual Care and Functional Exercise Capacity in Survivors of Critical Illness Upon Intensive Care Discharge, Observational Study. Angela Waters and her colleagues are from the University of Newcastle in Callaghan, New South Wales the Curtin University in Perth in Australia, the Lung Institute of Western Australia at the University of Western Australia in Perth, the Physiotherapy Department at the Royal Perth Hospital in Perth, and then finally the Physiotherapy Department at Sir Charles Gardner Hospital in Perth. So this is a team that comes from a variety of clinical settings to address this question. The sample is very small, so the sample is 23 participants who were survivors of critical illness. And again, this comes back to that theme of are the physical therapists providing an adequate intensity or are they kinesiophobic as well? So what they found was that these survivors, and they described the characteristics of the survivors, were asked to walk a six-minute walk distance and then they compared the distance that they could walk using the six-minute walk distance to the maximum distance ambulated on the ward. There was a significant mismatch. So the patients were able to walk much further than they were being asked to walk on the ward during physical therapist intervention. And so I think, again, what the two outcomes from this, one is that the six-minute walk test, which used by some as a measure of endurance, a distal measure of endurance, or just understanding the distance that a person can walk, may be a useful test to consider in patients who are discharged from acute care setting. And then the other is that perhaps 
um, physical therapists should consider the dose of intervention that they're providing uh, and determine whether it's adequate or not. The next paper is a paper entitled Efficacy of a Novel Method for Inspiratory Muscle Training in People with Chronic Obstructive Pulmonary Disease. The first author is Daniel Langer. The team is from the Respiratory Medicine and Rehabilitation Sciences at KU Leuven in Leuven, Belgium, the School of Health Sciences from the University of Aviro in Aviro, Portugal, the Department of Physical Therapy, the Federal University of Minas Gerais in Brazil, and then finally, the Center for Sports Medicine and Human Performance in Brunel University in London in the United Kingdom. So this is really fun because look at all the different countries that have contributed to this study. And the study involves not only physical therapists, so it's an interdisciplinary team as well. This is a fun one because basically what the authors do is challenge current intervention. And I'm going to give you a brief overview. So inspiratory muscle training is something that has been accepted for treatment of persons who have chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. And in fact, the muscle training has been reported to improve the inspiratory muscle function itself, decrease exertional dyspnea, and increase exercise tolerance. So there's nice literature and in fact, there's a meta-analysis that suggested that inspiratory muscle training was effective. And in that meta-analysis, the conclusion was based on mechanical threshold loading for about 30 minutes per day, every day. So this is an intense program. So the authors found some studies that indicated that perhaps that load wasn't necessary. So the opposite of what we've been talking about before. In this case, perhaps the intervention is more than is necessary to achieve an effective outcome. So these articles have just been so much fun to read. They really have two questions, and it gets a little bit tangled, but I'm going to try. The first question is, is it necessary to do supervised inspiratory muscle training, or can it be done in a home setting with a patient unsupervised? And is this new device that offers tapered flow resistance loading effective? All right, so there's kind of two pieces in this efficacy study. So but what they did was they used two different devices. They selected patients, and the patients were treated at home using two daily sessions of 30 breaths over an eight-week period of time. And then they looked at outcomes. Now, this is a great study because there's a video that you can look at online to look at the method that the patients used to perform the intervention. Basically, what they concluded was that home-based inspiratory muscle training was effective and that it produced improved muscle function in both groups. But the participants who used this tapered flow device tolerated higher training loads and achieved larger improvements in their inspiratory muscle function. So there's lots that need to be done. They only looked at muscle function. They didn't look at activities and participation change. But what it does is it begins to challenge the need for the patients to be in the hospital under supervision or even in home care under supervision. So it could expand the amount of time that people can exercise. 
this new tapered flow resistive loading device records the quality and the type and the number of repetitions of the training so the therapist would have documentation of whether or not the patients have been adherent. So it really begins to challenge some maybe constructs that we've assumed. I really do thank the authors for that paper. The next paper is entitled Assessing the Psychometric Properties of an Activity Pacing Questionnaire for Chronic Pain and Fatigue. The first author is Deborah Antcliffe. The team comes from the physiotherapy department and the research and development department in North Manchester General Hospital in the United Kingdom and the School of Nursing, Midwifery, and Social Work at the University of Manchester. Again, I haven't been talking about the kinds of credentials that are found within these interdisciplinary teams, but I hope you recognize that the articles are being submitted by teams, not just physical therapists, but teams all interested in improving the quality of care of the patients. This paper talks about activity pacing, and again, I'm going to give you the definition. Activity pacing involves the modification of behavior to improve function, manage symptoms, and reduce relapses and disability. The problem in the literature is it's not clear whether activity pacing means that you reduce the amount of activity, you break down the tasks, you go at slower speeds, you introduce rest breaks, or whether activity pacing means that you increase activities, so you set goals, you grade activities so that they can achieve a higher load. So that was sort of the problem that these authors were facing. In a prior paper, they used the Delphi technique to begin to develop an assessment tool called Activity Pacing Questionnaire. And in this study, what they do is use that first developed tool to see whether there are questions that perhaps can be excluded. They compared it to other standard tools, and they also looked to see if this activity pacing scale was able to distinguish patients with different severity. So the pacing is usually advised as a coping strategy in patients that have long-term conditions such as chronic low back pain, fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue syndrome, all right. So what they did was they used 311 patients who had the diagnosis of chronic pain or fatigue, and then they used a smaller sample to look at a test-retest analysis of the tool. What the results suggest is that this is a tool that you might find useful. It hasn't been demonstrated whether it changes as a result of changing an intervention, but it does appear to be a sensitive tool in being able to discriminate patients with high levels and low levels of pain. The next paper is entitled Movement System Impairment-Based Classification versus General Exercise for Chronic Low Back Pain. This is a protocol of a randomized control trial. The first author is Daniel Acevedo. He and his colleagues come from the doctoral program in physical therapy at the University of Sao Paulo in Brazil, the physical therapy department in the Pontifical Catholic University of Minas Gerais in Belo Horizonte, Brazil, program in physical therapy at Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis, Missouri, Faculty of Health Sciences at the University of Sydney in Sydney, Australia, and the Musculoskeletal Division of the George Institute in Sydney, Australia. So again, a multi-country focus on a protocol. 
This is a protocol of a proposed study. What the authors are proposing to do is look at two different kinds of interventions and compare them using outcomes over two, four, and six months period of time. It's an eight-week treatment program, and the two arms are to compare the movement system impairment-based classification or a general exercise program of stretching and strengthening. The primary outcome at two months will be to look at pain using a visual analog scale and whether it has been reduced, and also to look at disability using the Roland Morris Disability Questionnaire. Again, other outcome measures are proposed for two, four, and six months post. So this is one that we look forward to seeing. The reason that we publish protocols is so that someone else doesn't come up with similar study and begin it when, in fact, there's an ongoing study. Another reason that protocols are useful is you kind of see what's going on in the future of research. And finally, it sets a really good rationale and helps us understand the kinds of research that needs to be done in our field. The next paper is entitled Successful Management of Severe Unilateral Low Extremity Lymphedema in an Outpatient Setting. The first author is Teresa Laird, and the second author is Carrie Barrett. They come from Shenandoah University in Winchester, Virginia, and Dean Clinic in Janesville, Wisconsin. This is a really extremely well-written case report. It talks about the fact that often our emphasis on lymphedema is associated with post-cancer, post-oncology treatment. This is not the case for this particular patient. The patient had a stage 3 lymphedema in the lower extremity and following 23 weeks of physical therapist intervention using complete decongestive therapy, the limb with lymphedema was reduced to the same size as the non-involved limb. The patient became independent in ambulation and stair climbing, neither of which could occur before. So this is a happy ending of a very thoughtful intervention provided so I encourage those of you who have lymphedema as part of your caseload to look at that study. The last two papers in this issue are perspectives. The first is Rethinking Hospital-Associated Deconditioning, Proposed Paradigm Shift. The first author is Jason Falvey. Jason is from the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation at the University of Colorado. But I really need to talk about the other two authors because this is a perspective and they're both well-known to you. The second author is Kate Mangione from the Department of Physical Therapy at Arcadia University in Pennsylvania and Jennifer Stevens-Lapsley, who is from the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation at the University of Colorado. Please read this paper. It is so clearly written and so vital for us as we face this aging population. And you've all heard about the explosion of the older adult, but this study goes beyond that and says, okay, when they're hospitalized, not only do they have deconditioning when they're in the hospital, but this deconditioning continues after their discharge. So the team prefers to use hospital-associated deconditioning. It's a very thoughtful paper discussing what kinds of impairments and activity and participation limits the persons have and the role that physical therapists should play in providing a more intense program than you might think you would offer to these older, frail adults. 
and also the role that the physical therapist should play in leading a team and recognizing the need for a more aggressive intervention with this patient population. I'm sure instructors will use it in teaching, but I think clinicians should think about whether or not their dose is effective, and they offer really nice guidelines for you to consider. The final perspective is also absolutely spectacular. The two authors are Martin Watts and G. Lauren Mosley. Whenever I see Dr. Mosley's name on a paper, I know I'm going to be encouraged to think very differently, and that's certainly the case for this perspective entitled Theoretical Considerations for Chronic Pain Rehabilitation. The authors are from the University of Griswold in Griswold, Germany, and the University of South Australia in Adelaide, Australia. This is a short paper, and it is absolutely vital for all physical therapists to read because it talks about pain. And tell me one of you who don't have to deal with pain in patients continuously. I just want you to read it. I'll give you a bottom line, but I don't know if I should. I think we've all moved towards the point of recognizing that pain is not something that you measure when you stick pins in the patient and say, does that hurt? That's nociception. And so that pain is something that occurs at the cognitive level. And so what these authors really suggest is, first of all, you have to listen to the patient. You have to listen to the patient's report when they talk about discomfort. You have to listen to when they have the discomfort, why they have the discomfort, and the context and the variables that make it worse or make it less. So that's one sort of lesson that comes from this. So we really have to spend time listening, return to that concept of listening to the patient as they report their discomfort. And the second emphasis is that when we say pain, our body thinks about tissue damage and our body thinks about protection. And many of the patients that we see are past the time when there's been tissue damage, but the memory of that continues. So again, what the authors really emphasize is the role that educating the patient about what this pain means and how it may not have to interfere with doing activities is really important. So please, please, this is a very short perspective, and I think it has profound implications. As I said in the beginning, this has just been a wonderful issue. I am so delighted to bring it to you all. I think what I'm reminded of is review, continuing education, making sure that we're comfortable with our scope of practice, that some of these papers really encourage us to return and upgrade our knowledge and skills in particular areas. Also, considering the dose being not prescriptive or don't throw a two-pound weight on all people, but really consider the dose that will challenge the patients. Those are two themes among many that emerge. Thank you very much. Have a wonderful September, and I look forward to speaking to you in October. Thanks for listening. If you have a question for Dr. Craig, email ptj at apta.org. And be sure to include Craigcast in the subject line. This has been a production of APTA.